0: Well, good morning. That's some good singing right there. One of the benefits of sitting up in the front row is we get to hear all of you sing. So, just fantastic this morning. Thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship. And thank you for singing out. That uh, says a lot about who we are and what we want to be. We want to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to sing his praises. We want to glorify him with our lips, and we want to glorify him with our lives. So let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to finish out chapter 4 today. We've been working our way through the gospel of John. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to finish out chapter 4 today and uh, keep chugging along here as we uh, move along in this great gospel account of the life of Jesus. Jesus. Well, last week uh, at our men's breakfast, and by the way, uh, just speaking to the men of our church, and we've had such a great turnout at our monthly men's breakfast, and let me just encourage you, if you've not been a part of that, uh, it's well worth your time. We have a fantastic breakfast together. We sing praises to the Lord, and then we look into the Word of God. We just launched a new study, by the way. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Man, and uh, it's going to be a great study. I opened up our series last week and I shared some sobering statistics from a recent Gallup poll. And that poll showed that just 81% of Americans say they believe that there's a God. 81% of Americans say that they believe there is a God. Now, we know that that is inaccurate according to God's Word. Romans chapter 1 speaks to this issue, Paul says there to the church at Rome that it is evident within us and it is evident to us that God does indeed exist. And man is without excuse because God has revealed himself in a general way to every man, woman, and child. Of course, there in Romans 1, it says that those who say there is no God are simply suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're pushing down the very truth that they have within them, the very truth that they can see because of general revelation. Of those who say they believe that there's a God, from that poll, of those who say that they believe that there's a God, the vast majority of those 81% don't believe in the God of the Bible. They just simply would acknowledge that there is probably some higher power than man. And so we live in a world that has tried to take the God of the Bible out of the equation. Unless, however, there's a crisis. And then all of a sudden, folks seem to want to try and reach out to God. Now, it only makes sense the longer you live, the more history that you experience And so over my lifetime, there have been some very pivotal times where people who were in desperate situations have turned to God because there's nowhere else to turn, whether their situation was personal, like a health scare or uh, the death of a loved one, or because they lost their job and perhaps have become destitute, or because our nation was under attack. I distinctly remember that after the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001, and that's, by the way, been 22 years ago now, there there was a noticeable shift in our country toward prayer and church attendance. People were scared, and our government was on high alert, and many people turned to God as a result. I have sat in prisons with people who have committed heinous crimes And they are literally at the end of the rope and they reach out to God for help. Not for a personal relationship with Jesus, but to rub the bottle in hopes that the genie will come out and grant them a wish. Because when things clear up or when time passes, and this indeed was the case after time had passed after the terrorist attacks, most of the people that I have just described turn back. To their humanistic devices and don't even think much of God until the next time they need Him. So, this morning, as we examine verses 43 through 54, we find a a desperate father reaching out to Jesus in the same way. Not because he believes he's a sinner and that Jesus is the Messiah, not because he wants to follow after Jesus and dedicate his life to Him, but because his son is very sick and near death and there is nowhere else to turn. But unlike most of the accounts that I just mentioned, this story has a very powerful ending. And so as we close out chapter 4 this morning, our passage before us identifies three main figures in this miraculous account of Jesus once again displaying his deity. So follow along as I read. We'll read verses 43 through 54, and then we'll take a look at it in more detail. Verse 43 of chapter 4. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you people are, see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he started off And he was now going down and his slaves met him saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour where he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour. Now you remember that the seventh hour would be seven hours after sunrise. So it's probably around one o'clock here. It was about one o'clock, the seventh hour that the fever had left him. And so the father knew that it was that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household believed. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So when we read that story, we see uh, there are three key figures here. And so we're going to look at each of these figures in detail this morning. First, of course, we have Jesus. Second, we have the sick young man. And then third, we have this royal official who is the father of the sick son. Now, there are others that are mentioned here in the story. Not sure if you caught them, but you have the Galileans in verse 44 and you have the slaves in verse 51, but they're very brief mentions. And so there are three key figures that we want to highlight today. Jesus, the young man who was healed, and the young man's father who was a royal official. So let's begin here as we work our way through the text. Let's begin by first considering the primary figure in this account, and it is Jesus himself. And so if you're taking notes this morning, first, Jesus arrives in Galilee. Jesus arrives in Galilee. Look at verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, you recall from verses 40 through 42 that at the request of these newly converted Samaritans in Sychar, Jesus had stayed over for two additional days. And we learned that as a result, many believed in Jesus. Look at verse 40. So when, like, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, and this is the woman at the well, they were saying to the woman, it is, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one, capital O, this one, Jesus, is indeed the Savior of the world. If you would, keep your finger there in John chapter 4 and turn with me back to Luke chapter 15. So, During Jesus' three-year public ministry, Luke 15, during Jesus' three-year public ministry, he continually rebuked the unbelieving Pharisees and the scribes, and he often spoke in parables, right? So back in Luke 15, verses 8 through 10, Jesus describes how special it is when just one person comes to faith in him. It's the parable of, of the lost coin. Jesus said, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found the coin that I lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Isn't that cool? Isn't that isn't that neat to know? This is the very heart of Jesus. He loves sinners. He loves sinners. Those who have turned their backs on him, who have sinned against him and his holy law, he loves sinners that was the mission of Jesus, to come to the earth to save sinners. And isn't it amazing to think that when we repented of our sin and we came to faith in Jesus, that there was a celebration in heaven. It shows the personal nature of salvation, right? God chose the nation of Israel corporately as his people, right? But not every person who's a Jew is going to go to heaven, One must trust in Jesus Christ. One must repent of his sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. So just because you're Jewish does not mean that you're going to heaven. And in the same way, as we've worked our way through the gospel accounts, we have seen that God sent Christ to come not to die just in the place of Israelites, but to die in the place of all who will trust in him. This is the very heart of Jesus. He loves sinners. And so throughout our study, we've talked about what it means to believe in Jesus. It's more than just this intellectual acknowledgement of his existence. Having a right understanding of saving faith is essential not only in this account here that we're considering here in chapter four, but in our own lives as well. Belief in the Greek Is pistuo, pistuo. It's akin to faith and trust. Faith in who Jesus is and personal trust in what he provides for sinners. It's not an acknowledgement that Jesus existed. It's kind of like how we started this morning, that there are a lot of people that acknowledge that there's a higher power, that, that God is indeed somewhat supreme. I mean, we don't know, but yes, there must be someone out there But faith, belief, is personal. It's faith in who Jesus is and personal trust in what he provides for sinners. As we just read here in verse 42, it closes with this acknowledgement that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And we can say a lot about that, and we did when we considered this text, but he is the only Savior of the world. He he is the one who can save a repentant sinner from the destruction that they deserve. And he's not just the Savior of the Jews, we learned, but he's the Savior of the Samaritans and every other tongue and tribe and nation, the whole world. So after staying over in Sychar for those two additional days, Jesus heads into Galilee and he makes a very interesting statement. Did you catch that? He says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. A prophet has no honor in his own country. And it seems that he means by that that he he was readily accepted by the Samaritans and many expressed saving faith. But as we know, he was generally rejected by his own Jewish countrymen. And so he goes into Galilee and it says here that the Galileans received him. They received him. But this is not a statement that points to receiving him as the Messiah like the Samaritans did, but receiving him as the the traveling magic man, the man who performs miracles like he did in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, which many of them had attended. You see, the Galileans were the, the ultimate consummate tire kickers. Many of them loved to witness what Jesus could do, but they didn't love Jesus himself. You see, there's a big difference, and we considered this earlier. It's one thing for folks to call out to God and acknowledge Him when they need something. It's quite another to have a relationship with Him as their Lord and Savior. And so this leads us to the examination of the second key figure in this story, which is the young man. And so now we pick up the story back in verse 46. Therefore he came to Galilee, Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum, and when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and to heal his son for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, "Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe." And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so Jesus returns to Cana of Galilee. And you recall that it was in Cana that Jesus performed his his first public miracle by turning water into wine at that wedding that he and his disciples were attending. And of course, the details of that account are recorded back for us in the beginning of chapter 2. So some significant time has now passed and Jesus is now back in Cana. And so apparently word had traveled very fast that Jesus was in the vicinity. And so this royal official reaches out to Jesus in desperation. He finds Jesus. He begs him to heal his son because it appears that his son is near death. Now, again, Not to be overly critical here, but the text indicates that the royal official approaches Jesus not because he wants to place his faith in him as Messiah and follow him, but because he wanted to use Jesus for the benefit of his son. And as fathers, we understand this, right? We understand the love that we have for our sons, for our children, One of the greatest, most joyous days of my life was when we had our son, our first child. And I remember crying like a baby and thanking the Lord for this gift of our son. And so I understand. I understand this guy is going to to take every measure possible, everything he could possibly do to make sure that his son lives. And we would all do the same, right? Whatever it was, this guy had very little knowledge of Jesus, and yet he had heard that he does miracles, and so he reaches out to him. He comes, and he finds him, and he says to him, please, please, please heal my son. You know, it's a, it's a bit ironic, though, that the, the royal official approaches Jesus asking him to give his son physical healing, physical life, While Jesus had been traveling all throughout the region offering spiritual healing, healing, spiritual life, eternal life. Jesus addresses this in verses 48 and 49 when he responds to the official. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And so at this point, Jesus could have just said, hey, uh, get back to me when you seek eternal life. But again, as we'll see, he doesn't say that. Instead, he displays this this amazing love and grace and mercy to this young man and his father. And we see that here in verses 50 through 54 in the eventual saving faith of the royal official. And so all this leads us to that royal official who is the third key figure in this account. And we see this beginning in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he started off, and he was now going down. His slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed and His whole household believed. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, most likely, this royal official served in some special capacity under the rule of Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee, who reigned from 4 BC to 39 AD. Antipas was the son of of Herod the Great, who ruled all of Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth. And those of you who are going to Israel, we're going to go to Herod the Great's palace on the Mediterranean Sea, and we're going to see the ruins of his palace. It's fascinating. It's going to be the first stop on our trip. Beginning in verse 50 here, while Jesus appears put off, by those who just wanted to see him perform miracles. Again, he he lovingly and graciously heals this young boy without ever uttering a word. Did you notice that? He never said, be healed. You know, like when Lazarus was in the tomb and Lazarus had died and Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. He spoke the words and guess what? Lazarus came forth. But here, he doesn't speak the words. He just says that your son will live. It's very interesting. So he he lovingly and graciously heals this young boy without even uttering a word. It's important to note that this young boy is in Capernaum, and we'll also visit Capernaum. Capernaum is some fifteen miles away from where Jesus is currently located in Cana of Galilee. So it's a 15-mile trek to where this boy is in Capernaum. So so the dad, the royal official, made the trek from Capernaum all the way to Cana of Galilee to find Jesus and to beg him to heal his son. So what does Jesus say? He simply says to the royal official, go. Your son lives. Go. Go your son lives. And so the official takes Jesus at his word, and he journeys back to Capernaum, and on his way he encounters some of his servants, and they report to him that his son is alive and well. When the official asks them about what time his son began to get better, they tell him that it was about the seventh hour, which was exactly the time in which Jesus told him, go, your son lives. Many of you know that my wife, Kathy, uh, lost sight in her right eye a couple of years back. She was originally diagnosed by several doctors with uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, but to us, that diagnosis didn't seem to make a lot of sense because as we read up on it and we studied it and we talked to others, it just didn't seem like she had all of the other symptoms that went with it. And so we kept going back to doctors. We kept going back to specialists and doctors. She kept having more tests done and more tests done just to try to determine why she had lost sight in her eye. And so we finally get to another specialist at Hershey Medical Center. And you remember how long that day was. We, we were there with this specialist for hours. Three to four hours we were with this doctor. He did test after test after test And then at the end, he came back with another two or three staff members, and they said, we've consulted together, and we do not believe that your wife has MS. But, they said, we think that she lost sight in her eye because of a lack of blood flow to her eye. And then he told us that it's irreversible, and there's a 15% chance that she will eventually lose sight in her other eye. Well, it was at that point that I spoke up and I shared with him about our faith. And I said, thank you. We appreciate all of your work. But with all due respect, we don't believe in percentages. Nor will we rule out that this condition is somehow irreversible. And I then said to him that our God can heal her in an instant just like that. Go, your son lives. Kathy, your eyesight has been restored. And so we believe that God can heal her and he may heal her. This royal official went from a desperate thrill seeker to a true believer in Jesus Christ in an instant. And his whole household also came to faith in Jesus. And there was a celebration in heaven, These miracles that Jesus performed were proof that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one sent from God to come and to do what sinners could not do for themselves. Some believed and some didn't. But the people of Cana were blessed to have witnessed two of Jesus' amazing miracles. The first one that he he performed During his three-year public ministry, as he turns that water into wine, and now he has healed the royal official's son. Amazing. Amazing. As we wind things down this morning, I think it's important for us to understand that technically, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are accounts that occurred under the Old Testament economy. Okay. These books were placed in the New Testament by the translators. But Jesus' life on the earth was during the age of the law. The law was operative during Jesus' life on the earth. The inauguration of the church didn't happen until later after the Holy Spirit comes to indwell sinners at the Feast of Pentecost, and that's all captured for us in Acts chapter two. The church wasn't inaugurated until after Jesus had gone to the cross to die in the sinners in the place of sinners, after His resurrection on the third day, and after He appeared on the earth in a glorified body for some forty days prior to His ascension to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And so, again, all that we are considering here in the gospel of John, as it relates to the life of Jesus on the earth, is still under the Old Testament economy. That's important. It's important, and I'll tell you why. Yes, Jesus came to fulfill the law, but the law was still operative at the time that Jesus was on the earth. None of the epistles had been written while Jesus was on the earth. At the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 5 in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them, right? That fulfillment wouldn't take place until after his death and resurrection. I mention that because some dispensationalists have wrongly argued that God had two ways of salvation. One way of salvation was for those who are under the age of the law, and a second way of salvation was for those in the age of grace or the church age. So to clarify and to correct that assumption, there have never been two ways of salvation. There have never been two ways of salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in what God has revealed to man, all based upon the sacrificial, substitutionary, propitiatory death of Jesus Christ. And we clearly see that being the case here in the Gospel of John as so many believed in Jesus. Again, it's the Old Testament economy. They weren't coming to faith because they kept some set of laws. They came to faith because they placed their trust, their belief, pistuo, in Jesus. Personal trust, personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I get asked all the time if I'm a dispensationalist. (laughs) And some of you have asked me that question. And my answer is always the same. It depends on what you mean by that, because I'm not a big fan of man-made labels. For those who are not aware, dispensationalism is a man-made system intended to help to make sense of how God has worked over time the definition of a dispensation is an era of time in history or an economy during which man is tested by God as to man's obedience to some definite revelation of God's will. So in dispensational theology, there are seven dispensations with three distinctions to each economy. And just while we're talking about it, let me give you these distinctions. First, man is given some sort of a command or responsibility to keep. Second, man fails in carrying out that command or responsibility. And then third, God brings some level of judgment upon man because of his disobedience. And so those are the characteristics of what they call a dispensation. Lewis Sperry Chafer, the founder and former first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, said this about dispensational theology. He said, Each dispensation, therefore, begins with man divinely placed in a position of privilege and responsibility and closes with the failure of man resulting in righteous judgments from God. Now, we don't have time to go through each of these seven dispensations this morning, And again, this is just man's attempt to make some sense out of how God has worked or is working in redemptive history. But we can use the first dispensation as an example. Some of you are knowledgeable of dispensationalism. The the first dispensation is called innocence. Innocence. It, it, It comes from Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. Now, using those three uh, distinctions of a dispensation, we find there, as it relates to this dispensation of innocence, the responsibility or command was for Adam and Eve to abstain from eating of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to tend the garden, right? So this was God's given command to adam and eve that you can eat of all the other trees but you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so what happens they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they're disobedient they sin and god hands down a judgment right he hands down this judgment he drives them out of the garden they died spiritually and they began to die physically So, there are seven distinct eras of time or dispensations, and and each of those three characteristics that I shared earlier are a part of this system. Again, those who developed this system have given a name for each of the dispensations, and I just gave you an example of innocence. Well, there's seven of them, seven of them. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law grace millennium so these are the seven dispensations that are a part of dispensational theology i understand that that's a lot of minutia some of you may have turned me off here just a few minutes ago but but here's what you can make note of which is really at the heart of dispensational theology there's four tenets four tenets of dispensational theology. Number one, uh, a separation between Israel and the church. In other words, God has given Israel uh, promises that he will one day fulfill. And those promises are separate and distinct from the church. And so uh, the first key tenet of dispensational theology is the separation of Israel and the church. Second, it's the use of normal literal hermeneutics and hermeneutics is just the interpretation of scripture it's the study of the interpretation of scripture so it's the use of normal literal hermeneutics when interpreting the bible third the third key tenet of dispensationalism is seeing god's purpose in redemptive history as bringing glory to himself why did god create man for his own glory why did God create the earth? For his own glory. And then fourth, a distinction between the age of the law and the age of grace. And what we're seeing here in the Gospel of John is we're moving toward, we're moving toward, as we continue on in this three-year public ministry of Jesus, we're moving toward this transfer of the age of the law where Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that happens after his death and after his resurrection, upon his ascension into heaven, the church is inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. And so there's this transfer from the age of the law to the age of grace. And so when we think about it, we can see in Scripture that, yes, God did work in different ways during different eras of time. So we can see that, right? But I'm not a big fan of labels, I'm really not. I don't need to identify myself as a dispensationalist. Although, I do hold to those four key tenets of dispensational theology that I just shared. Separation between Israel and the church. The use of normal, literal hermeneutics. In other words, the Bible wasn't written in code. Wasn't written so that we have to try to figure out what it is that he meant for us to know. In fact, 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything we need for a life in godliness. Everything we need to know about is found here in God's Word. It's not in code. We don't have to try to figure it out. Yes, there are some passages that are more difficult than others, and we would readily admit that. I study every week for hours and hours and hours and hours, and there are sometimes I get to a passage and I, I don't know what it means. I just don't know what it means. On on a first reading, a second reading, a tenth reading, I don't know what it means. I have an idea, but I'm not sure. And so it requires further study. But God has given us his word. It's perspicuous. In other words, it's understandable. God has given us His, his word so that we can understand it, so we can employ it into our lives. He's given us everything we need to know how to live for him. It's not written in code. And so that's the second key tenet, the use of a normal literal hermeneutic. So when God says in Revelation chapter 20 that the millennial kingdom, which is mentioned all the way through the minor prophets, if you were with us during our study of the minor prophets, how many acknowledgments of the future millennial kingdom do we have to look at for us to recognize that, hey, you know what? There's a future literal millennial kingdom. In Revelation chapter 20, six or seven times, he says a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Definitive period of time. And where in Scripture do we have a definitive period of time that we're not to take literally? Well, some would say, well, isn't it said that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord? Well, that's that's using a figure of speech so that we can understand the eternality of uh, of Christ, the eternality of God, but 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 uh, the use of normal literal hermeneutics is is essential in our understanding of the Bible. Again, seeing God's purpose in redemptive history as bringing glory to Himself, and then this distinction that we see here in Scripture between the age of the law and the age of grace. So this is for another time and I'll look forward to this, we can further examine the differences between dispensational theology and covenant theology. Covenantalism, which by the way, is another man-made system to try and to explain how God has worked over time. And, and, and the, the three main covenants in covenant theology, I would also agree with. But there are marked differences between those two systems. But whichever position you hold, it should not be a point of division within the body of Christ. We unite over the gospel, right? And the mission of the church. And it seems to me that over time in my lifetime as I've continued on in life and ministry, there seems to be a growing minimization of the importance of the church. Not for Jesus. Jesus came and died for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We've been given the church and we're to love it and so at the end of Jesus' life, there's that transfer, the transfer from the age of the law to the age of grace or the age of the church. Hey, it, to me, uh, and I, I hope to you, I get, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback in our study of the gospel of John, and that's a blessing. Uh, but it, it, it's been a joy uh, to, to, to work our way through this gospel. This is the first time I've ever preached on it. So I've been in ministry almost 30 years. This is the first time I've ever gone through the Gospel of John. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. What I'm going to do today, when I get, well, we're traveling today, but uh, whenever we get to our destination, uh, I mean, I just, I can't wait. I can't wait to get back and unfold the next passage of Scripture. So we have a long way to go, certainly, in our study, but it's such an encouragement to watch Jesus at work. I mean, we're, we're seeing a historical account, a historical narrative of the life of Jesus and all the ways that he worked. And we get to relish in this and we get to thank him for this and we get to acknowledge him because of who he is and what he's done and what's recorded for us in scripture. And, and remember, we're not given everything that he did, right? I mean, I mean how how big would the book be? How big would the Bible be? but we're giving every- we've been given everything that we need to know and everything that God wants us to know. We don't have everything God knows, we don't have everything that God has done, but we have everything that He wants us to know. so we have a long way uh to go, but it's such an encouragement to watch Jesus at work. why? because it's personal with us, right? Just like when we take the Lord's Supper, it's personal. We do it corporately because it's an ordinance of the church, but it's personal with us. He is our personal Savior. He is our advocate before the Father. He is our Lord, Kyrios, Master. He is our Master. I'm loving it. I'm enjoying the richness of study, and uh, looking forward to moving into chapter 5. Now, what we have talked about since the inception of our study of the Gospel of John is the emphasis in the Gospel of John on belief, right? Not acknowledgement that Jesus exists, not acknowledgement that He performed miracles. Not any of that, but a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A faith in who he is, the sinless son of God, who was sent by God to come to the earth and to die in the place. He was on point, wasn't he? He was on point. You know, while he's doing all this, while he's, he's performing these miracles, he knows that his end is near. He knows that it isn't too long before he will go and accomplish the redemption of the souls of millions of people, the weight of their sin on him as he goes to the cross. Do you ever get hyped up about when you got to do something and you're looking forward to it and you're so distracted by it? I hate when I do that. I hate when I get so distracted by something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Jesus isn't distracted. He's on point. He lives each and every day for the Father's will to be accomplished, pointing toward the cross. And it's personal for us. It's personal. He died in our place. Celebrate that in your life. Rejoice in that. Think about it. so cool to see that the angels have a celebration when just one sinner repents. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about Your Gospel, the amazing good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. As we think about all that You have done, You loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to come and to to die in our place, sacrificially, substitutionally, so that we do not have to meet our demise or that destruction that we are promised for those who do not repent. And Lord, I'm mindful of the work that you've done in so many of our lives that are here today. And then I also think, you know, there could be some who are here that that do not know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because we've all studied what Your Word says about how we can receive eternal life, and yet some may still be in unbelief. And so, Lord, I pray, because we know that You are the one that opens our eyes to Your truth. We pray that You would do that work today you would do that work in the lives of people that need to trust in Jesus. And then, Lord, for those of us whom you've saved and you've rescued from the destruction that we deserve as sinners, sometimes I think we just take it for granted. We just take the salvation that you've given to us for for granted. We, We go about our days. We know we're saved. We know that no one can snatch us out of your hand. We've received eternal life. May we glory in it and be thankful for it. And may that be our motivation for living for you on this earth. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for this amazing account that we studied today of of Jesus, just, just in thought, healing this young boy. And then what you did as a result of his work, that the royal official and all of his family came to true saving faith. What a story. What an amazing account. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.